Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whether a student is preparing for an exam or a professional is reviewing notes for their presentation, one thing is certain. When the hour comes, you can't fake it. A professor knows which student worked hard all semester and which crammed the night before. A good executive recognizes who is spinning a PowerPoint and who has done the actual work and understands facts on the ground. You have to do the work and it takes time, effort, and patience. You can't fake it. If you think you can, it's because no one has been decent or courageous enough to call you out. Thankfully, the biblical God is a loving and kind teacher who is not only willing, but eager to call you out. If you let him, he will definitely teach you what to say when the hour is at hand. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 11 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 193 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One thing that's very important for our listeners, if you want to pursue the ideas we talk about more fully, if you want to take time to explore whether or not you agree with some of the ideas we're presenting, the only way to do it is to read Scripture. You yourself need to constantly be going through the text. If you yourself, outside of the podcast, aren't reading Mark over and over again, and reading the prophets, and reading the Pentateuch, and going through all of these texts that we referred to, and doing your own study of other books that could bring insight to this study of Mark, you will always struggle to really understand what we're saying, and where you stand relative to the proposition that we lay out each week. And this podcast is kind of a teaching-preaching format. It's a unique format. It's not a discussion. We are bringing the text with authority to our listeners. We are making a proposition. The question you have to ask yourself is, what is my reference? If my reference is myself, if I am self-referential, When someone speaks with authority about the content of Scripture and it makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to find excuses and reasons to dismiss it. I'm going to be offended. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to do whatever. If someone is self-referential, they're going to choose comfort every time and they're going to make the assumption that anything uncomfortable is the problem every time. That's why these theologies that try to figure out why a just God would cause suffering are 
blasphemous because you're rejecting the will of God. Job, at the beginning of chapter 3, commits blasphemy when he curses the day he was born because life is a gift. But Job cursed the day he was born. Job was self-referential because he thought that because he did everything right, he was good with God, and it doesn't make sense why he's suffering, but he neglected to reflect on the suffering of everybody else in the world. I always wonder when Job wanted to blot out the day of his birth, what else happened on that day that would be blotted out along with it? This is the sin of self-reference. And maybe the podcast is painful. So what good can it produce? Just realize that both good and evil can produce good through the Holy Spirit. When they arrest you and hand you over, Do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And here, what is critical is what we were just saying, that if you're not studying scripture, you will not know what to say. When you immerse yourself in scripture, when you go to bed at night, when you get up in the morning, when you walk along the way, when you keep watch in the middle of the night, if you meditate on the Lord's precepts, when the day of the exam comes and your teacher, who might be a Roman executioner, questions you, you will know what to say because you will have prepared yourself. I love this because there's a beautiful ancient Syriac poem about Simeon the Stylite. And it says that Simeon the Stylite is the flute that the Lord plays with the Holy Spirit. And that when God blows his Holy Spirit through him, then beautiful music comes out. But what I love about this image is what happens if your flute breaks? You get another flute and you play more music with that. It's not the flute that's important. In this passage, why Do you appear in front of the magistrates? Because God has something to say, not because you have something to say. If you have something to say, you're going to garble what God has to say. So you have to be completely empty, completely empty of your own words. Because otherwise, the Holy Spirit will not be heard. You are only there as the flute. You are not the virtuoso. Only God is the virtuoso. God is playing you so that his word can be spoken. And this comes from the very beginning of Mark, where Jesus and his disciples' only function was to spread the seed of the word. Because fruit of the word is the only point. Now, if you're worried about, oh no, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? You are going to be in the way. You can't worry about that. When he says, do not worry This is what he says to his prophets. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There are lots of scholars who talk about the prophets say, this is the commission of a prophet is when you say, don't be afraid because it always happens. God is always saying this because as soon as you're afraid, you're thinking about yourself and your own biology. It's not about you and your biology. It's that the word of the Lord is spoken. That's the only point of significance. If you don't understand this basic fact, that scripture was written by Pharisees. If you don't understand what Father Paul Tarazi has been trying to explain for so many years in his scholarship, that the characters of the Bible are anti-heroes, 
that the writers of the Bible bombard themselves. You won't understand what Richard is saying about God using you as an instrument to play his song. We even hear it in the liturgy. After the epistle is read, we don't say peace be to Jim who reads. Peace be to the one who reads because this week it's Jim. Jim gets a sore throat. Next time it's Chuck. It doesn't matter. As long as they can pronounce the word, then the peace goes to the one who reads. But the individual is immaterial. And if the person is up there reading and decides he's going to throw in a few words of his own, he's going to garble the message, he's going to garble the word, and is no longer the Lord who speaks but Chuck. Then the priest is going to say, either you read correctly or I'm going to get another reader. You're not we're, doing your job. We're not here to hear you. We're here to hear Paul. And that's what's happening in front of the magistrates. We're not here to hear the martyrs speak. We're only here so that they can testify to what Scripture says. That's it. But this puts a tremendous burden on the listener of the podcast. The burden is that since Richard doesn't matter and since I don't matter, it's the message that matters. You have a responsibility since you're listening to work on Scripture yourself so that you can do your own podcast, you can teach your own class, you can do whatever you need to do in your life where you are to sow the seed because it is the seed that counts. I don't matter. You don't matter. None of us matter. What matters is the continuation of life and this urgent mission to share the wisdom of God for the generation not yet born. We are either preaching scripture, preaching the word, or we're not. If we are Submit to what we say and do it. If we're not, find that place in Scripture that contradicts us and submit to that and do it. Correct. But either way, submit. Stop saying, I know better. It's not you. Either Scripture knows better or we know better than you. But one of us knows better than you. Do that. And Scripture is there. There's no perspectives on Scripture. There's no your truth and my truth. There's a text. And it is there. And it says something. And all of us will be gone in a generation and the text will still be there and it will still say the same thing. Which means that it can be explained. So stop making a big deal out of the Pharisee, which is what I am and what Richard is. We're Pharisees, obviously. Stop making a big deal out of the Pharisee and deal with the content of the teaching. Work with the seed of instruction. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. This sounds to me like Micah. It's not dissimilar to the consequence for disobedience in Micah, where even in the marriage bed, there's alienation between husband and wife. People have gone to such an extreme in individualism that they no longer even care about the continuation of their own line, their own family. They only care about themselves. They don't care about their children. Their wealth isolates them from other people to whom they have a duty, but instead they rather just follow their own thing and they have no problem putting their children or their parents to death because they want to get their peace. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This is just common sense. The one who is successful is the one who has tenacity and perseveres through all failure. And scripture is training us to persevere. 
because there will be many more losses than there will be victories for the servants of the word. Apparent losses. We're in it for the long game, so you've got to stick it out. Not stick it out till your business succeeds. Stick it out till you die and die in hope that someone will continue the fight, that God will always find people to continue the fight through submission to his teaching. I'm a wicked and worthless servant. That's what you continue to remember till your dying day, but continue to serve. With hope against hope, this is the point. It's a true hope. If you hope in yourself, it's a false hope because you're going to die. But if your hope is in the word, and the word teaches you to place your hope there by making it very clear to you that you're a useless servant, so that there's no way you would trust in yourself because you're temporary. Then you work as a servant, a slave, in hope because you've accepted that the word will do what the word is going to do, as we said at the very beginning of Mark. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, John Chrysostom explains or argues all those centuries ago, Richard, that the abomination of desolation is a synonymous title for the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, which is an interesting fact. And I think it's important to mention here because the threat facing the addressee of the Gospel of Mark was very real. This wasn't a comfortable Bible study in a suburban church. This was a text addressed to people who are going to have to make the ultimate choice. Am I going to hope against hope and trust that the word of God will accomplish its goal even when I fail under the boot of the Roman army? Am I going to trust and persevere to the end? Scripture is recruiting us to persevere because, again, it's in it for the long game. Don't forget that this is all a response to the students who said at the beginning of the chapter, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The abomination of desolation, you know, it sounds like Ezekiel, where you have all the abominations in the temple. And then you have the people, the Jews then worshiping, because it's the temple, whatever's in the temple, they'll worship it because they worship the temple more than that which is in it. Now, at one point in Ezekiel, God leaves the temple. And with no Lord there, what are they worshiping? Now, when it says that all those of Judea, at this time, a Jew that comes from Yehud, that means someone who is of Judea. So the Jews are fleeing to the mountains because the temple is now corrupt beyond repair, beyond blessing. So where do you find the Lord when the temple has been desecrated? It's wherever the word is spoken. You go out to the mountains as long as the word is being spoken. As Ezekiel experienced, God can come along in his chariot wherever he needs to go. So you leave the temple because Staying in the temple is impure and even blasphemous. You have to leave because only there will you be able to hear the word. And once again, I have to tip my hat to Father Paul Tarazi and his scholarship surrounding shepherdism in the biblical tradition from Genesis to Revelation. Because if you try to stay 
in the structures that men build when the Roman armies invade and surround Jerusalem. In verse 14, you're done for. But if you run to the hills, from whence cometh my help in the Psalter. My help comes from the Lord. If you run to the place that God built, the wilderness, the mountains, the hills, the places that man didn't construct, that's where you can actually find life, even in this desolation. Remember that if you're a shepherd and the Roman army is coming, you just move and go graze somewhere else. Just like in Genesis, you move from one well to the other when there's a dispute over a well. Just like in places like Afghanistan, when the Westerners invade, you go to the mountains and you live and God provides. This is the mentality. And people in this situation understand grace because how else can you live in the mountains? You have to trust that the power of God who made the mountains is mightier than the power of Caesar who is surrounding Jerusalem. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And again, interesting. What are you going to go back and get from your house that's going to help you out? <laughs> if you read it this way, if you read it as this intuitive polemic against materialism and against depending on the things that men covet, it begins to make much more sense than these theologies that invent this imaginary world of the end times, which isn't what this text is talking about. This is not talking about the end times. This is talking about the very real and imminent danger that is present in late antiquity in Palestine for people who oppose the Roman Empire. Or in the case of the Christians, who appear to oppose the Roman Empire because although they bow down to Caesar, they don't worship him. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Again, don't go grab your coat. Don't worry about possession. Like Father Paul Terrazzi talked about Palmyra. When the Romans came to conquer the city, they came and there was no one there. They all disappeared. That's how Palmyra was able to sustain itself, not because of the city, but because the people were willing to flee at any moment and then they could not be held down. Exactly. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. That's an interesting verse. We just heard Jesus say that suffering was the beginning of the birth pangs of the kingdom, which means that the heaviest burden will be on those who are giving birth to children in the gospel by bearing witness. The ones who are pregnant are the martyrs, very obviously. And it's a counter metaphor because someone who's executed by the Romans, how can you imagine that they would give life? You have to think about it the way Paul teaches you in 1 Corinthians. You die. You fall to the ground and die. But the seed that you are carrying also falls to the ground and takes root and produces life. So there will be tribulation, there will be suffering, and the greatest burden will be on those who truly bear witness in order to give birth in the gospel. Those are the ones whom Jesus is lamenting. And those are the ones who in Revelation will come with Jesus in judgment. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. 
For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. And this sounds so much like Joel. When Joel, in the very beginning, says, when has this ever happened? Go gather the elders, gather people from all over the land and see, have they ever heard of something like this happening? The tribulation that's coming the listener has to understand this as the worst thing that could possibly happen. And only under these circumstances can God actually tell who is following his will and who is not following his will. For whatever reason, human beings need to go through this kind of tribulation in order to understand where their loyalties actually lie. What are their actual priorities? The fact that this is happening in winter also is to understand the seriousness of the tribulation. It's not just, let's all go for a hike up into the mountains. There is the pregnant women. There are the women who are nursing. It could happen in the winter time. This is not a stroll. This is not a hike. This is flight. It is dangerous. People are already giving up their own children to death. The one who wants to preserve themselves, they have to flee. And what you really have to understand and here Mark is talking the same way that Paul talks. We're telling you that pregnancy is a metaphor. But at the same time, it does not mean that the simple fact that it's going to be very difficult for pregnant people isn't true. In a very practical way, when Rome runs through your town, it will be difficult for women and it will be miserable if it's in the winter. But the point is that you have to understand that God is telling you it will be the worst thing ever and very difficult and you have to endure so that you can give birth. That's the real message here. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So if he wipes out everyone, then how are they going to speak his word? The people are there to speak the word. Of course, God can come up with other ways of speaking the word. But this is the way that he speaks. Just because you like playing the flute doesn't mean you can't take up the guitar. But if you destroy all the flutes, it'd be kind of a bummer. You can't play the flute anymore. Now, before we wrap up this week, I want to say something about this word. It's a very misunderstood and foolishly interpreted word in many different theologies and traditions. It's eklektos, the elect. People think of this as being some special group that gets special treatment in the end times. This is silly. That's not what it is. You have to think of this beautiful word in English, eclectic, which comes from eclectos. When a group is eclectic, it's a group of people that are gathered from all over the place. It's like you wouldn't know that they shared anything in common except that they're gathered. So you have to think about a shepherd gathering his flock you have to think about a farmer gathering hens. You have to think about God gathering people with his word. It doesn't mean that you're special in the sense that people wrongly understand chosenness in the Torah. It means that you've received the teaching and therefore will be made an example out of, as Paul explains in Romans. You will be held up as an example of sin, as an example of stumbling, as an example of failure. And God is saying that even though in his teaching that is what he does with those who are gathered by his call, 
he is still merciful. That's the statement. If you hear it as there are some elect special elite group that God's going to pick up and save from everybody else, then you are not preaching the gospel of Mark. You are preaching the gospel of prosperity and the gospel of entitlement. So please stick with the text. Job was singled out and chosen as the most righteous of anyone who God could hold up as righteous. Did that preserve him from suffering? No, he suffered terribly. His family suffered terribly. In the end, though, God taught his lesson, decided to relent, and to grant Job some children so he wouldn't die without children in his old age. So being chosen is good in God's eyes. Whether it's good in your eyes, it's not for you to judge. That's a great place to wrap up today's episode. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.